Welcome to episode 176 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. I'm very pleased today to interview Dr. Phil Verlager. Now, Phil is a very, very well-known expert in global oil markets, energy markets. He earned a PhD in economics from MIT in 1971, worked in the Ford and Carter administrations, taught at Yale University, VP in the Commodities Division at Drexel Burnham Lambert, and of special interest to me, for a time taught at the Haskane School of Business at the University of Calgary. So he actually does know Alberta and the Canadian oil industry uh, to some extent. So welcome to the interview, uh, Bill. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, look, I'm really excited about this because there are a number of questions that I've been asking economists and I've never got a straight answer, but I think you might be able to give me one. And here's the first one. So the IEA says that by well, 2030 or so, that global oil consumption is going to rise to about 110 million barrels a day. So let's just, for the sake of this hypothetical, let's, let's assume that. And then it'll start to uh, probably hit a plateau and, and begin to decline. So what happens to prices when 108 uh, million barrels a day meets 110 barrels a day of supply down the road or 105 million barrels of, uh, of demand? So the answer, the, the answer is the answer that Harry Truman, President Harry Truman hated, and that's a two-armed economist. Uh, it obviously depends on uh, the success of oil exporting countries to cut production to sustain higher prices. Uh, sometimes they've succeeded, sometimes they've failed. Uh, I, I can't count the number of times I've suggested my, uh, over my career that they were failing when they didn't. And I also can't count the number of times I said they were gonna hold and then they failed. Uh, but they likely will try to hold prices up. Now, the, fir the first point I'll say is, I, you know, the 110 million barrels a day is a pie in the sky number. Uh, the, we'll be, the oil producers will be lucky if demand is 100 million barrels a day in 2030. Uh, it's going to fall more rapidly. But the, the, on prices, it will depend on how successful the oil exporting countries are. Today, they're falling apart because of the sanctions on Russia. Uh, it, in 2030, production will be lower because there will have not been a lot of investment outside of OPEC. And so a few countries, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, may be holding uh, prices, uh, may be able to cut production and hold prices up. My guess is that they'll have trouble and that what we'll see is prices pl plunging at some point between now and 2030, and they'll probably be down in the 40s or 50s. Okay, that's a that sounds to me intuitively like a reasonable explanation and, or, and an expectation. And I guess uh, what I'm getting at here, I, I would assume as a non-economist uh, that the days of a hundred dollar barrel uh, a barrel of oil are gone. That will probably as as consumption uh, declines over time, we'll see that bumping along at forty or fifty, and there may be some you know 
excess supply at times and the price drops below the cost of production for you know Canadian oil companies. But the the days of excess profits, of windfall profits, seem to be numbered. Is that fair to say? The number of times we will see windfall profits are probably numbered. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see very high prices one or two more times in the next uh, 10 years. Uh, my biggest concern right now is that uh, Russia collapses. Uh, the, you know, we, we look at what's happening in Ukraine. We look at the failure of Putin's special operation. We look at uh, the anger that a lot of the people have, and you have to say there could be a revolution there, and that could bring down oil production dramatically. If that were to occur, then you get a you could get a very significant price spike. Um, how long it would last, I don't know. Uh, it would certainly accelerate the movement off of oil, but it would give windfall profits to U.S. Canadian and Saudi producers in the meantime. But if I was a CEO of a Canadian oil company, I certainly couldn't count on those kinds of catastrophic events that worked in my favor uh, when I'm doing my strategic plans, my business plans. Absolutely correctly. Absolutely correct. There is uh, nobody should plan on a disruption. And even if you plan on it, uh, you should worry uh, that there'll be a Joe Biden around to make it not such a, uh, a profitable event. I mean, Joe Biden has managed uh, to do uh, what nobody, no other president has done, uh, and that is stop the escalation of prices. Prices could have gone to $150 a barrel if a year ago in March, Biden hadn't announced that the U.S. was going to release 180 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, the oil industry was uh, has been outraged about this, but I was there. I was part of the group that put the designed the SPR when at Treasury, and our thought was the whole point is to avoid economic disruptions. And having written a book about disruptions and many academic articles, what I will say is this is the the twenty two uh, twenty twenty two energy disruption is the first time we haven't seen a serious economic loss particularly in Europe. The Europeans played this game magnificently and and they kept prices in the 80s and 90s. So that leads me to a question. Is the oil industry already disrupted? Yes. Okay, how Definitely. do we know that? How do we know? That? What are the characteristics of a disrupted industry today? Well, the first characteristic, if you go back and you look a lot at many industries, is and I, I rather than using uh, disrupted, let me use the uh, uh, term sunsetting. Oil is sunsetting. And the first sign of a sunsetting industry is the demand for investors for their capital back. Now, investors always are looking for a return on capital. In sunsetting industries, what one sees investors demand a return of capital. And if you look at the statements that oil companies are making about increasing dividends, increasing buybacks, investors are demanding a return 
of their capital. They don't, they want investment to be negative. Okay, that leads me to a question about the oil sands companies in Canada, which are the big, you know, the, the Canadian majors, mm -hmm. as it were. And there's four or five of them. And I regularly go and I check their investor presentations to see what they're telling investors. And the, the latest one, uh, actually, this is true for a couple of years, is they're saying, look, we are going to give you 75% of our free cash flow back in higher dividends and share buybacks. And a couple have even said, look, we'll give you half of the remaining 25%, uh, you know, if prices stay up and we're, we're doing okay. And I took that to mean that basically to, to continue getting access to capital in a capital intensive industry, to keep their stock prices up, to keep the CEO from getting fired, they basically have to placate the, the investors. That's their first priority. And you're saying that's the number one criteria of a sunsetting industry. That's correct. And when they say, you know, if they're uh, paying back three quarters of their cash flow, maybe more, uh, they're not going out borrowing because these the banks don't want to lend to these companies. Essentially, they are helping, they're helping liquidate their companies. You know, the company's assets may be higher today because their reserves are worth more uh, on a reserve accounting basis, but on a constant dollar basis, they're liquidated. Okay, well, that's an entirely new narrative in Alberta, I can tell you that, because right now the narrative is that the this is the golden age of the oil sands and everybody's flush with cash and, and you know, things are just wonderful. Uh, but then again, if I was liquidating an, uh, you know, an oil company slowly, that's exactly what I would say, because I wouldn't want anybody to, you know, I, it would be a sleight of hand. Look over here because you don't want to see what I'm doing over here. That's right. That's right. Okay. Let's talk about the timing of peak plateau, uh, peak oil demand, the plateau, and then eventually decline and what the decline curve might, might look like. Now, I've interviewed the International Energy Agency's oil uh, analysts, and they were saying a couple of years ago that they thought peak oil demand globally was going to be 2030. Would you say now that it's likely that that has moved up? It's probably moved up. Uh, you know, it's I read their studies, uh, and you know, I've read a lot of other studies. Uh, uh, it's very hard. You know, there are no facts about the future, and it's really hard to look even seven years ahead, given the rate of technological change. Uh, the electric vehicles are coming. The interesting thing is that the type of electrical vehicles that really would have displaced gasoline and, oil and diesel fuel are slow to appear. Uh, and by that, I mean the vans and the, uh, the small trucks that are used for delivery and uh, essentially you see running around town all the time. Uh, there is a great article in May 16th in the New York Times where they talked to somebody, a plumber from uh, Kansas City who had, had five trucks and he now had one electric truck. He's discovered that the savings he's realizing on the electric truck will allow him to buy yet another electric truck in a couple of years. And other van owners, Amazon, Federal Express, everybody are looking, have ordered their electric vans, but they've ordered them from these smaller companies that have had teething problems, particularly given all the supply chain issues that occurred 
uh, during the pandemic. Now, two of the companies that were very slow to get into this, GM and Ford, have stepped in. Now, it's not surprising GM and Ford were slow to get into it because legacy firms tend not to want to move into these new technologies. But they've jumped in and they've they've created electric versions of their vans and they sell out because anybody who with a business where the, the, they use it eight, 10 hours, 12 hours a day can charge it at night. And this is and the cost savings are so dramatic that this is accelerating. If gasoline prices go up further, it'll the, the change will come quicker. So that's why it's really hard to look seven years in the future and say anything definitive. You know, I want to make an observation about that, because while that's true in the U.S., it's not true in the in China. It's not true in some of the Asian countries. For instance, you know, uh, China, even a couple of years ago, had 400,000 electric buses. They had they've already far sooner than the U.S., they have begun to electrify those medium duty vans and trucks yeah. and, you know, the, yeah. the work vehicles. Um, they're already starting to think about battery swapping and other ways to do up yeah. their class eight, you know, the big semi-truck vehicles. Yeah. Europe is Europe is in between the U.S. and and China. So, uh, you know, looking at, at the U.S. as a, a laggard in this particular market segment, you know, it's maybe not a good indicator. And I would suggest that given the Inflation Reduction Act and other incentives, that the U.S. will probably catch up maybe a little quicker than we might have expected otherwise. I think you're right. And I and I should apologize for for leaving China out. And, you know, the, uh, there's been one study, uh, one investment banking house study I've seen that said that the Chinese actions alone have displaced, I think, 600,000 barrels a day of gasoline demand this year. And that's going to grow. I mean, given the rapid penetration. One of the places to look, and I, and, and I use this as a good example, is Norway, because Norway is way ahead of China, ahead of everybody else in terms of electrification. And once what one sees is a decline in the growth of gasoline, but not quite as much as I would have thought, just because it's there, Norwegians still really have two cars, a gasoline-powered car to go on long-distance trips and a uh, an EV to to go on short distance trips, you know, gasoline will some gasoline will survive until uh, the battery uh, recharging structure is better. But it's yeah, you know, it's I I you know, I just don't think that the peak is going to come in twenty thirty. I think it'll come sooner, and uh, and I think it, particularly on gasoline, it's going to be harder for uh, sustainable jet fuel because that's very expensive to make. And one of the key things one finds about transitions, whether it's cell phones, uh, uh, automobiles, others, is that the relative price that consumers pay matters and matters a lot. Oh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Because one of the things that we, and, and here in, well, it's true in Europe, but it's particularly true here in, in North America, is, is that when we think of EVs, uh, we think of the kind of vehicles that Tesla and now the legacy menu, uh, automakers are making, which is they've gone after the high end because they want to capture the premium, you know, the profits that come with it with, with premium products, the Hummers and the, the Lightning F-150 pickups and those sorts of things. Not in China. That's China, right. China has, yes, it has some of that, but it has put a big push on making cars affordable. You can buy a $4,500 street ready to go uh, EV. You, they just introduced a, a whole bunch of them um, with lovely birds like names like the birds, and you know they 
the the yeah. dolphin and that sort of thing. But anyway, those are in around the, the eleven thousand dollar mark, and they're getting three hundred kilometers to of range, and they can seat four adults. I mean, and and China is you know has such a, a a huge demand in their domestic market that they're not they're only they're slowly moving into other markets like Europe, for instance, yeah. and they haven't shown up in North America, but they're coming. Uh, and I forget the co company's name was begins with B. BYD. Uh, BYD. B, yeah, BYD is becoming a big exporter. And the European automakers are now, you, you can read, are suddenly tr looking for some form of protection against BYD and the other Jap Chinese people. Yes. And, and it's, but it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's both the capital cost and they're going to drive that down. And we can see it already in the big price cuts that have been taking place in China for the Teslas and so on since the first of the year even in the United States. But the second is, it's the question is not just the uh, the initial cost, it's the lifetime cost. And if, uh, you know, if uh, uh, owners of vans can look at spending $50 a week on, uh, to, uh, to, for the van's operation rather than $300 a week, they're gonna move very rapidly, even if the capital cost is higher. And this, you know, it, all of this pushes for a much more rapid uh, change now. Kingsville Bond, who you've interviewed and who I've talked to, talks about an exponential change uh, versus a, a relatively linear change. Uh, I don't know which one it is. It depends on the price. If prices if prices keep coming down and they can make it go go for less, uh, the change is going to be much faster. Well, let's talk about linear versus exponential growth because I just literally had that conversation with Kingsmill this morning in my latest interview with him. And we went and we talked at some length about this. And and so, I mean, you know, for listeners who uh, are new to this, linear is, is you know, you add if sale, if you add one unit this year, uh, you assume you're going to add one more unit to sales next year and, and so on. Whereas in linear, the the, uh, the more you sell, the fast, the faster your rate of growth. And that's where you get the hockey stick uh, curves uh, for for adoption. Right. Excuse, excuse me. Well, you, you said. Second time for linear, you meant to say for exponential. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, thanks for yeah. clarifying. I, I get, I get, I get rattling on here, and you know, I, I sometimes all, I get the of, terms wrong. All of us do. Indeed, indeed. So the the uh, I mean, and his point is, and and I've interviewed other uh, folks who, who make this argument, is that exponential growth is baked into energy as a technology. It doesn't matter if you're talking about wind or solar or EVs or batteries or electrolyzers or heat pumps. It's all baked in because it's a technology. It gets manufactured. Wright's law, right? Learning curves. The, yeah. the more you, every time you double the production, you get a, a cost reduction. You don't see that on the, on the oil side, on the gas side, on the coal side. So what, but what's your take about all of, all of that? The, the importance of exponential growth versus linear. The, Key word is price. Uh, it is clear if you look at technological changes, whether it's the introduction of roads, superhighways starting in 1950, which essentially pushed passenger rail out of business, or the introduction of the jet plane in the late 50s, which pushed steamship lines out of business. It's the price. And we see the best example for today, for the people today, for people who are, are, are 
under 50 today is the cell phone. Sure. The cell, cell phone came in and it was very expensive in 1985 when it came in. And there were almost none of, nobody there. And if you measure this against the expense uh, on landlines versus cell phones, everybody had a landline. The price was four times as high. Now it's one half the price. And 85% of the telecommunications is now cell phones. The, as the price falls, you get the rapid change. And what I have found in my research is that a linear change in price, that is, uh, if we go from uh, two to one to one to one, you get an exponential change in the market share. And so it's, it's going to be as price changes. Now, in looking at this, the question becomes one of, how do we measure price for automobiles? There's, a, there's the capital cost, which is what consumers look at usually, whereas in businesses and so on look the, at the lifetime cost. So if you and this is why I go I think the van story is so important. So if you, if you can say okay a van operator is looking at now save, saving fifty percent of the cost over the life of the van, they aren't going to walk. They're going to run uh, uh, in to get the electric vans as quickly as they possible. And that gives Ford that gives every other manufacturer pricing power to charge more for these because they're capacity constraint. It'll, it's going to be different for the, uh, for the uh, electric vehicle. Some consumers will stay. And it'll also depend on how the recharging networks develop because consumers tend to want to be able to go 200 miles and sometimes like we do from Denver up to Vancouver Island where you are. And it's a little hard to find, still find EV charging places out in remote places. I want to introduce something that I I often talk about, but I don't think I've ever asked an economist this question. And the the influence of value in that calculation, because I look at you know the the iPhone. Okay, and you made a really good point in one of the papers that you sent me, and that is that while the iPhone got all the attention in terms of driving adoption of the smartphone after 2007, in fact, it was the introduction of the Android phones, which were really cheap, that drove the volume, yeah. uh, the kind of yeah. big numbers that we that we saw, and so that kind of backs up your backs up your point. But it, I think it's also true that on the higher end. You know, people will pay more for something if they receive additional perceived value. So, for instance, a Lightning, you know, F-150 Lightning uh, can charge your home for three days. Uh, and Jim Farley, the CEO of Ford, says that that's the number one reason why people buy those trucks is because they live in California, they live in Texas, where they've had, you know, uh, uh, grid outages. And this way they can charge, keep their home uh, electrified for three days uh, when that when that happens. And so it's a value that, I don't know, you know how you calculate a, a dollar uh, amount for it, but it has real value to the consumer. And I think that electric vehicles, and you see this in China where they're like rolling iPhones, right? That's a big yeah. deal in, yeah. in China. So the, the EV brings more value than an internal combustion engine car. And what role might that play in adoption rates? I'm not sure uh, that, you know, that's a question for uh, an economist who really teaches marketing, who, who does a lot of marketing research. I, I mean, and, and I, I live with some of these people, but uh, what I will say is that the ability to char run, uh, run off the thing is terribly important for huge area, huge parts of the business. Contractors really like this because 
for for a lot of job sites, you have to take a, a, a generator along. So if you have a Ford Lightning, you take the Ford Lightning, you plug all your things into it, you can run most of your equipment. Maybe you need two Ford Lightnings. You don't need a generator. You're running off the battery, and then you recharge. And it, it you know, it's going to, you know, they can't, Ford can't make these trucks fast enough. Uh, and again, so it's a question of how quickly they can be made. Uh, the uh, the example I used from the New York Times for the van opera, van, the guy, the van operator, uh, plumber, uh, uses his van uh, to power his tools on his jobs. It's a different kind of van. I think it's a it's a GM van. But the the point is, yes, the cars are going to have more uh, more features. But I think you know Ted Levitt, who was a uh, marketing myopia in 1960s and was a was the guru of the Harvard Marketing School, uh, uh, Harvard Business School. Uh, uh, invented the term globalization, for example, uh, wrote in 1960 that the gasoline station could never be more popular because consumers saw it really as a taxing, uh, a taxation issue. They had to stop to use their vehicle. And just not having to stop at a gasoline station, but being able to stop where you want to stop, say a restaurant, plug in, charge while you're doing something on a trip or something like that, it creates huge values. There's just all sorts of these values that are created uh, by EVs. Now, whether ha uh, uh, the cell phone as you describe it, a rolling cell phone as you describe it in China, is it? I don't know, but it, yes, they offer a lot more to the consumer than just a plain set of wheels and a gasoline engine. Now, you and I had a chance to, to chat a little bit about this on, on email, and, and I have interviewed others about Vaclav Smil. You know who teaches at the University of Manitoba. So Canadians, we can we can claim him as one of our own. And and he is the dean of energy transition studies. There's no question about that. But you think he's wrong, and frankly, I think he's wrong. Uh, and well, I'll talk about explain why I think he's wrong. But I'm curious about why you think he's wrong. Explain to me what's wrong with Vaclav's analysis of this energy transition. Well, to be fair, he's right about some things. Uh, uh, Lord, I think it's Lord Stern or, Rich, or Sir Stern uh, who wrote the Stern report for the UK years ago uh, uh, preempted Smeal. Uh, Stern is a really good economist. And, he, and the Stern report looked at global warming. And he warned that if you build a coal-fired plant, uh, and I guess he was writing probably about the turn of the century, uh, it, uh, you, it would run until it, uh, it was exhausted. Uh, and to a large extent, he's right. Once somebody builds a coal-fired power plant, they're going to run it unless the cost of coal and operations become so high relative to wind that you shut it down. What Smeal misses is the effect of technology. And in many areas of energy consumption, technology is overtaking things. And I use the telephone system as an example because all across the world, in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, you see these central exchanges, these buildings that were built to have where all the tele copper wires come together. You dial, pick up your landline phone, you dial a number, it goes to the central exchange and goes out. And in Smeal's view, those things will be around and be used until they're exhausted. Well, in fact, they're tearing them down because technology changed. Yeah, people, economists, worried in the 80s and 90s, how are we going to get phones to Africa? Because we had to string all this copper, copper wire. Did we have enough copper? 
uh, we have to wire the whole thing. Yeah, we never wired Africa up and they're perfectly well connected. It's called a cell phone. So it's technology changes and it can make uh, make existing capital obsolete and you tear it down. It happened to railroads, steamships, many kinds of ships, uh, propeller-driven planes. You know, the propeller-driven planes were, were perfectly good. They were still selling DC-7Cs when the first Boeing 707s rolled off the line. A lot of those DC-7Cs flew 10 years and were scrapped rather than flying 30 years as it was expected. So it is what Smeal misses in this whole thing is the role of technology, the role of Bill Gates, the role of uh, uh, Steve Jobs, the, th the Apple, the things that have changed, just the disruptors, as Clayton Christensen, Christensen called uh, 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 disruption uh, uh, crisis. And Joshua Gans calls the disruption dilemma. Yeah, new inventions can drive out existing capital and make it worthless. I'll give you my view very quickly about about Schmiel, uh, because and let's let's face it. I mean, the, 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 he's done tremendous work. He's written thirty five or forty books, and 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 our understanding of energy transitions would be much poorer without his scholarship. But like all scholars, you know, others others come and stand on his shoulders and rethink how energy transitions work. And uh, and so for me, because I think in of in term in the of an energy transition in terms of technology, which then gets on the S curve and and travels up the S curve until it gets to market dominance. But those first 20, 30, 40 years, well, the flat part, you know, if you were thinking about a hockey stick, it'd be the blade of the the hockey stick before it yeah. gets to the 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 shaft. During that time, like if you look at the existing technology, the key technologies here, uh, commercial solar panels, 1970s, commercial wind turbines, 1980s, uh, lithium ion battery, early 1990s, first, you know, modern, modern uh, EV prototypes, late 1990s. I mean, all of those technologies have been on the flat part of that S curve for decades. And they've been getting better and better. It, it's been an iterative process. They've been getting the costs have been coming down, and now what we're seeing is is uh, is not suddenly this energy transition burst onto you know from nowhere. It's it, well, I guess it's like the old old story about overnight successes, right? You know, all the years that that people worked hard to get become an overnight success, and 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 I think Schmiel forgets that. I think he he forgets the deep deep roots of this energy transition in these you know with the, with these new technologies. That, that's my take on it. No, I can't argue with you, but I think that there's more to it than that. Uh, what Smeal misses, and what a lot of people, even Kings of Bond, miss, is that it's not just the engineering. It's not just making the things better. It's not just making them so they, they're less expensive. It's finding the capital to build the plants, to expand the plants, and go forward. And that didn't have, start to happen until the late 70s, after the U.S. went off gold. And after oh, 92, when we changed some uh, technical regulations on what pension funds could invest in. And so that suddenly venture capitalists could go to pension funds and, like Cal CalPERS and so on and get not a few million dollars, but a few billion dollars 
to go and really start building. I mean, it takes capital. It, it, and, you know, Schmiel attacks economists all the time. And, and, and I don't disagree with him all, uh, for some of his attacks. But the fundamental key thing is you have to have the idea. You have to be able to bring the cost down, as you said. And you have to find the money to build the plants. I mean, Tesla, you know, if you look at Tesla, okay, it, it, it came out really right around the turn of the century and they started moving ahead. What really made Tesla work? It's the recharging system so that my friends who've had Teslas for 10 years have been able to drive across the country because they're supercharging places. Yeah, you know, uh, we drive out to California and if we go out, uh, to Salt Lake City, you go, come to a little town called Lovelock, Nevada, where I've always stopped. I actually know the guy who owns the station. One of the times I stopped there, maybe 10 years ago, there were four Tesla supercharging things in his parking lot. And I asked him about it. He said, well, I've had one, we'll get one or two customers a week. But uh, Tesla came and they're paying for it. You know, it, it's a network efficiency. You have to have the network. You have to do all these things. Where the bottleneck now on, on wind power in the United States and much of the world, transmission systems. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's blocked. Now, you come back to, to, to uh, uh, Smeal. It's transitions can go fast if there's the money. Now, he wrote, if you look about, look at how, how he writes about in the uh, uh, last century, why it was slow to go from coal to other things. Uh, and back then, all the money was in the hands of a few big companies. And as Christensen said, the big companies uh, in the investor's dilemma go very slowly. They don't want to undercut their existing business. So, so the economic structure didn't support innovation. And so the reason why I think we're going to get to net zero, and I'm pretty optimistic about that, is the, the whole industrial structure has changed. The whole financial structure has changed. The money's going to be there if you've got a good idea. Uh, there are going to be lots of billionaires emitted, and we're and and the economic incentives are all there. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so one last point about Schmiel, and that is that he often gets invoked by the oil industry, the CEOs, the, the the oil bros, the oil boosters. You know, they they love to talk about Schmiel because a slow. B linear and and I had a guy today on social media we were talking about this and he goes no he said no it's never going to be exponential it's been it's been linear in the past it'll be linear in the future uh well uh, no uh but that the point is that it's that linear and schmiel and those ideas around that are baked into the narrative a narrative is for incumbent industries is such a powerful thing because it it becomes a form of groupthink. I, I see I run into industry people all the time who are a little more on the progressive side in Calgary, and they'll say, "Oh, Mark, you know, you go to the Calgary Petroleum Club, and it's just this groupthink about you know people moaning about there'll never be electric widespread electric vehicles because our neighborhood distribution you know system will will never handle more than three electric vehicles on a street that kind of thing." And and so the the impact of those ideas to reinforce incumbency it should not be underestimated, in my view. Uh, well, reinforcing incumbency and reinforcing bankruptcy. <laughs> I give Ooh. you a I give you a classic example of this. Uh, 
I've ever used a linear, uh, uh, when we first started, you, you, and Kingsville have talked about linear transitions. And I've never really talked about that. It, you know, it doesn't fit in the economic lexicon. But there's a company called Eastern Kodak. It had massive businesses uh, selling film. You remember when I was young, in my, my 50s, going all across Europe, you'd see all the yellow boxes. Uh, yeah, if I weren't doing what I'm doing, I'd be a professional photographer because I'm pretty good. Uh, they had a lot of patents on digital photography. But the management of Eastman Kodak was all wedded, as was the management of Fujifilm, to the idea that it going, was going to be, what well, I'll use you, you know, the term linear transition. It's going to be slow. And they, del you know, they delayed, matter of fact, they didn't introduce a lot of their uh, uh, patents because they wanted to keep selling film. And they they just you know they just kept pushing it, and then when Apple and the Android came on with cameras and so on, their business just collapsed. They went bankrupt. So the companies that are thinking linearly, to use your term again, and they're thinking, oh, it's only going to be three houses or so on that are uh, that ha have electric vehicles because the transmission system doesn't handle. Uh, uh, are uh, wrong and they're going to lose yeah here in denver uh we don't have solar panels on our house because the the roof is cake catered the wrong way uh and we're going to be moving up to boulder to a, a really fancy a really nice retirement place but a number of my neighbors have put solar on their roofs and they have teslas uh and now calgary has a problem with uh with solar power i learned when i was teaching at the university there uh, because it is just a little too far north, right? So in, in the middle, you know, in the summertime, hey, it's great. You could, you could, you wouldn't need to burn anything. You could run, run almost everything on solar. It's a little harder in the winter time, but there, I, I mean, what we have now is battery technology. So you can see people uh, shifting to batteries. The other problem Cal Calgary has that's going to require some more technical change, which will come, is batteries that work better when it's cold. Right, a battery, a battery power cars. I mean, I remember at, at the Haskane School, outside they had places you could plug your car in, uh, all across in the parking lot, so that uh, people, uh, you, uh, cars would start it on really cold days. They're called they're called block heaters, Phil. Block heaters. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I never had a car there, and so I never. And uh, I, uh, uh, I, I had a car there in the summer, not in the winter. So I'm sorry, uh, I never learned the word. <laughs> But the point is, there is a lot. You know, the, the transition is going to come. The oil industry is, is acting just like the steamship industry acted, just like the railroad industry acted, just like AT&T. AT&T employed one out, uh, 11 out of every 100 people in the private sector in 1972 here in the United States. And the CEO complained about offered uh, the programs to let uh, competitors in. He tried to fight it, national security grounds. Oh, it sounds like the oil industry. Lots of other arguments. Uh, by uh, 1985, I think it's 85, the company was sold uh, for uh, a few hundred million, for less than $100 million to Southern Bell, which then renamed itself AT&T. It is, you know, the whole the uh, the blinders that the industry people have, and it's not just oil. The blinders they have in the legacy industries 
are tremendous. The auto industry almost missed out on the electric car, but for the fuel economy standards, which forced them to kind of start thinking about it, it's just every it's a. Uh, okay, story. so well, let me let me ask a question, Phil. And I I brought this up a, a little bit earlier, but I, I want to pin you down for an answer. Uh, so I'm a CEO of a big oil company in Calgary, and I can see, you know, I can read I can read newsletters like yours and figure some of this stuff out. And I can see that, you know, I'm going to face an existential crisis here in, you know, sooner than I had thought. And I, and, you know, and, and my business model is going to be disrupted. It's going to be challenged. And, and maybe I, the moment, this is my hypothesis. The moment he says that publicly, he's toast. Yes. So there it's the, the, there's a resistance here to, to addressing the disruption because the moment you do, you're going to be punished by the stock market, by the by the market. You're going to be punished by your investors. You're going to be punished by. You probably lose your job, and and uh, other companies then will will suffer the same fate. I mean, it just you get this downwards downward spiral, which leads to a conspiracy of silence or of boosterism. I, it does lead to a conspiracy of boosterism. Uh, uh, Cambridge Energy Research, which is now S and P Global, Dan Yergin has been the one of the oil, oil industry's biggest boosters for years. Uh, there is an there is an approach to take to survive and move ahead. And that's being led by Exxon. And I have to say, I respect Darren Woods. I think he's wrong on, on global warming and everything else, but he's doing, Exxon has always done it right. And that is, we don't know where prices are going. And we're not sure where demand is going. And we are going to be the low cost producer. So we're going to be the last man standing. And now they're saying, well, if we can, you know, we've, we've been doing enhanced oil recovery and injecting for years. Maybe we can make this thing work so we can, we can uh, make carbon capture and we have another business there. And it's the same idea. We're not going to go into the business of, uh, of, trying to help people recharge their cars because lots of people are going to do that. We're not going to go into the business of being uh, building windmills because Veritas and others have cost advantages there. We'll be the high cost producer. That's it. We tried out office equipment. We actually had the first fax machine, but, but it was too small a business for us to go. So, okay. The whole focus of this business is be the low cost producer. So if I'm, if I'm that guy in Calgary and I'm, I'm running a business, I'm going to say, gee, can I compete with oil sands at prices that Exxon's going to get in Guyana? If not, how can I get my cost down as far as possible? And then I'm going to try to do what, what farmers and others have done, which is hedge. Well, you know, and I help create the futures market. L try to lock in whatever I can, but just focus, be really aggressive about being low cost producer and not boast about how oil is going to be high or anything else. Just be sure that I'm not making mistakes that leaves me out at the high end of the cost curve. That's exactly what they're doing. So, and in fact, uh, I wrote a book in 2019 about the oil sands and I interviewed uh, Janet Annesley, who was a VP okay. at Husky at the time. Mm -hmm. And she said, look, Markham, uh, we like other companies have modeled out to 2050 you know, our competitiveness. Mm -hmm. And we have decided that uh, what the modeling shows 
is that we, if we get our costs down and we get our emissions down, because we, if we're not carbon competitive, we're going to, we're going to pay for that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The market yeah. is eventually well, going to. And pollution uh, emissions count as costs. Yes. That's, that's, that's exactly that's right. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 So we're going to do that. And, and we think that it, we have a plan to do that. We get to be cost and carbon competitive by 20, you know, up from now until 2050. And that's the best business model for us. We are not going to invest in little startups. We're not going to explore, you know, electricity and all of these other things. The only company, the only Canadian major that does that to any extent is Suncor. Yeah. They've been in renewables. They've been in some of these other, and they've invested in other, you know, like Lanza jets and these kinds yeah. of things. And, uh, but the rest of them are all, we're just going to get better at our existing business model. But the problem is, you know, they may get their production costs down between 25 and $35 a barrel. And, and, and there's some logic here because they compete. They don't compete in the, in the light market. They compete in the heavy market. Right. Their competitors are the Southern, you know, the, the Latin American, the Brazilians and the Venezuelans and the Mexicans and, and so on. And, and so, and they dominate in the U S in that 5 yeah, million. Right. That's so, right, yeah. so they, they can make, I think you can make an argument that the oil sands producers can hang on a little longer than the others uh, because they have a unique market. They have a unique resource. They can get their costs down. And so it's not necessarily doomsday, but they're not, they might go bankrupt, but here's my point, Phil, is that the prices will still be low enough that all they're doing is making at best a comfortable living. They're not having big windfalls. They're not, and and here's and and we haven't talked about this, but I'll throw this in here. There are currently three hundred billion dollars of unfunded environmental liabilities in Alberta connected to the oil and gas industry, and and once that decline starts, then there is no capital left. There's no money left to reclaim those in, in those liabilities that's the real for alberta that's the biggest danger well you're exactly right if 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 alberta and if the canadian government makes the companies begin paying for the remediation that's a question i mean we haven't made u.s company there's a huge remediation problem in the gulf of mexico uh and there the epa can reach reaches back one of the uh smaller uh companies that have bought shallow Gulf of Mexico production has gone bankrupt, and they're reaching back to Chevron and saying, okay, you have to plug those wells. As I understand the Canadian structure, it's you need some legislation to make that happen. Yeah, that's not the, and, and it has to be provincial legislation, because okay. this is provincial, not federal. Okay, and, and you know, I once was involved in a, in a case for, for the uh, Urban Skin Indians, uh, Urban Skin Band, and on uh, uh, trying to get some money back from Texaco. And it has to go. That had to go to the federal court because it was in uh, uh, First, First Nations. Uh, but uh, yeah, if the you know, having lived, having I never lived in Calgary, but having spent a good deal of time in Calgary, and just looking at the most recent election, I don't see that happening anytime soon. And when that happens, I think they shut down the tar sands or the oil sands production. That's you know that is the that, that's the breaking point. And until that happens, if they can keep their costs down, but it's, it, it's, you know, it's, you know, being the low cost producer, you know, you have the Valeros, you have the uh, marathons, 
on the Gulf of Mexico that just love that oil because it's it allows them to uh, because they have all the facilities to upgrade it, and natural gas is so inexpensive that it just it, it, it's uh, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the cokers are like roulette wheels that always turn, uh, that have only red on them, no black, and so you bet on red and you're always making money. It's when the uh, uh, it's when they, when that cost gets internalized, if it gets internalized, and it's got to shut down. But it's going to be a while. But the idea of growing, yeah, you know, one of the ways to think about this is companies like. The Canadian firms, Pioneer Resources in the United States, and so on, today are oil farmers. They essentially they produce oil, and they produce it the way the farmer, the farmers in uh, Alberta or Saskatchewan produce wheat. It's not going to be a uh, a business where you make huge profits. It's a business which, at best, will earn kind of nice returns going forward. Assuming they don't have to pay for their environmental liability. Yes, that's exactly which, right. Yeah. Now, I'm going to wrap up our conversation with a, a term that you use, which uh, is very interesting. I haven't run across it before. Petroanura. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Petroanura. Where did I use that? Uh, it's basically sort of the boiling the frog slowly. Analogy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I have a great editor. Tim Peterson in Florida. We've worked together since 97. Uh, I wouldn't be anyplace without Tim. And he periodically picks these words up that are just really great. He's got a book out on all these funny words. Uh, and uh, yeah, essentially we are, you know, the, the, the oil industry is in this pot and the temperatures are getting warmer. And eventually it's going to, you know, that's the way we, lot, you, you put a lot, you know, put a lot of lobster in a, a pot and turn the water on it. And it'll swim around for a while and then eh, dies. Well, and it seems to me that, you know, and you make the point that the environmentalists have been turning up the heat. Uh, they've been heating up that water for, for several decades, uh, which so it's not like the oil companies are now in the pot in cold water. The water is already warm. And in fact, it's kind of warm. Yeah. And and so the the issue here is that the energy transition then has the potential to heat up that water very quickly. But it's the, the environmentalists have heated the water up and I give them a lot of credit, but it's the technologists and the customers that are really heating it up. Right. Exactly. Uh, uh, we've talked a lot about the technologists. The other thing is the customers. You now, the oil industry used to have a uh, have a business that was just really profitable. That's selling oil to the airlines, and so the airlines figured out how to break the break the whole system apart. The oil companies ran the uh, the hydrant system at, at all the airports, like Vancouver, and the airlines got control of it. Then uh, uh, United was the first in Los Angeles. They'd bring over cargoes of jet fuel, bring cargoes of jet fuel to uh, to Honolulu, where Chevron had control of the system. And suddenly the the profits went away. Now the airlines are gradually pushing on sustainable jet fuel, and so some of some of the refiners, for example, uh, Marathon and Phillips sixty six and on the west coast, are converting refineries to uh, produce uh, renew uh, renewable diesel and sustainable jet fuel. They use uh, wheat, uh, uh, various soybeans and various used oil and things like this. Uh, 
it's, it's slow. It's going to be much slower than the electric vehicle because the cost, it's going to be a long time to bring the cost down. But the point is that the oil industry sold their refineries. They didn't want to own the refineries anymore. So the Marathon and, and Phillips 66 refineries that are being converted used to be owned by, by Shell and Unical, which were integrated oil companies. So the oil, oil companies essentially sold off the assets which are now being used to destroy them. It's, you know, so you got your customers are turning up the heat on the oil companies. Your technologists are turning up the heat on the oil companies. The environmentalists are turning up the heat on the oil companies. It's um, they're going to be uh, they're going to be suffered. Well, I would agree. And uh, Phil, this has been a great uh, great conversation, and you've given uh, provided my listeners with all sorts of uh, new ideas and uh, interesting takes on existing ideas. Really appreciate it. Uh, we'll know if you're willing. I'll have you back again in the not too Any, distant future. Anytime. Uh, it's it's uh, look. This is fun. It helps me think. So I get I get ideas from this. I got I got to pick up a couple of ideas here just from you. So, I mean, this is the trouble is there are not enough people around who look both at who look who understand the oil industry, understand the uh, coal uh, electricity business and understand the importance of the transition and don't have blinders on. You know, I will say just if I, I'm going to throw in a plug here for the kind of journalism we do, we are not. We're not specialists in any particular. So we cover we cover uh, oil and gas, we cover electricity, we cover all of the clean energy technologies like EVs and and so on, and we do it at a fairly high level. Uh, we'll we'll you know we'll drill down on some issues when we think it's important, but generally we do it at a high level, and then we connect dots. Mm -hmm. That's really our our journalism, and I think is I think in Canada that's very we're unique. I can't think of anybody else who does it quite like we do it. And the advantages that gives you is you get to see big global trends, you know, because 50% of the people we interview are people like you outside of Canada. You know, they'll be in Asia, they'll be in Europe, they're whatever. Yeah. And when you spend half your time talking to people in other countries and other regions, the, the energy transition uh, appears very differently, very, very differently. And so then you get to connect the dots. And then what lessons do we learn from Canada? How would we apply those learnings to, to you know, our country and our oil industry and, and so on? So anyway, that's that's kind of the approach we take. Connecting the dots is what all of us do. <laughs> and it's, you know, that's why, that's why the IEA, I, I'm critical of the IEA and it's kind of peak things. In part because... You ne the only way to understand transitions, the only way to understand economic growth is to look at lots of different countries, lots of different industries, and lots of different history. Because if you stay focused just on one area, you get it wrong. Well, from one dot connector to another, thank you very much for this. Thank you. Thank you.